everyone. Uh, welcome to our STEM Network podcast. My name is Hill. I am a senior BCPPN math major. I'm Scott, a senior at Amherst College, majoring in BCPPN computer science. We are both members of the Amherst STEM Network's COVID advisory board. We, what we do is we review COVID-related journals and articles that you, the ASN audience, submits to the Akabaki. We select important information from these resources and add them to the Akabaki database for you to understand the pandemic better. Today's conversation is designed to help you better understand COVID-19. Uh, in this podcast, we'll be having a conversation with our guest speaker, Dr. Douglas Lowy. Uh, specifically, a conceptual discussion revolved around vaccines in light of the current pandemic. Dr. L- Douglas Lowy is a deputy director at the National Cancer Institute uh, and a part of the NIH for the National Institute of Health. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself and your history and involvement with Amherst College? Sure. Uh, Scott and Hill, great talking with you. I uh, graduated from uh, Amherst quite a long time ago. I'm class of 64. And instead of telling you just about my connection with Amherst, because needless to say, I have been an alumnus since then, let me tell you why someone from the National Cancer Institute might have some competence in the area of vaccines against SARS-CoV-2. My laboratory developed the technology that underlies the uh, FDA-approved vaccines against human papillomavirus, the so-called HPV vaccines. Uh, And I have uh, conducted research for a long time on viruses that cause cancer. When there was the uh, COVID-19 epidemic, we turned some of our attention to uh, COVID-19 and the virus SARS-CoV-2. And therefore, I have learned a fair amount about the virus and the issues surrounding uh, vaccine development. Great, great. Um, can you tell us more about your like previous research work on the HPV? Sure. So <clears throat> I, uh, I run a research laboratory that is focused on cancer research. And some of the research that we do involves uh, genes that are uh, responsible either for promoting cancer or inhibiting cancer. But The research that I've done with uh, the human papillomavirus was first with genes such as that, but more recently, which really means over the last 25 years or so, we have studied uh, HPV more as a virus than something that encodes single genes. And as a result of that, we uh, studied the uh, proteins that are encoded by the virus and those different proteins, some of them make up the shell or the capsid of the virus. And they are the proteins which if you give them in a vaccine, induce the kind of immune response that leads to strong protection. Uh, And so over the last really 15 years, a fair amount of the research that we have done is first to try to understand the mechanisms by which the vaccine works. And second, to try to improve the utilization 
of the uh, vaccines. And right now, for example, we are involved in a large clinical trial that's supported not just by the National Cancer Institute, but also by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to see if the vaccine actually can work with just a single dose. Would that be able to provide strong long-term protection? The principal rationale for that is that the main cancer that is caused by HPV infection is cervical cancer. And on a global basis, cervical cancer is one of the most common cancers of women, and it's responsible for more than a quarter of a million deaths worldwide uh, from this single uh, cancer. And so if you could uh, reduce the number of doses that are needed to just one dose. It could be transformative to allow people in low and middle income countries to get vaccinated against HPV and thereby play an enormous role in controlling uh, HPV infection and thereby controlling cervical cancer. I guess so uh, one question that we've had regarding like the vaccine development process is like, um, how does vaccine testing really work? Especially like, like in the lab, I know that you can sort of test to see whether like an antibody or mm -hmm. I guess yeah. the vaccine uh, would work in like a, like a research environment. But when it, when you obviously like, you can't really directly test on humans, you can't directly expose them to the virus after you've injected them to do it like ethical reasons. So how do we like see would it be like in a purely epidemiological approach or how does that work? Sure, Scott, that's a terrific question. Let me say that the first part of development is what you're describing, which is what we usually refer to as preclinical development. And preclinical development, depending on the vaccine, is really trying to uh, essentially first, if you can, to understand what are the protective immune responses that get people over an infection? And can you make a vaccine that more or less mimics uh, that protective immune response? And you can test that in a number of ways, but as you point out, just in the laboratory or in an experimental animal model. In order to uh, go further and do testing in people, the general approach is to do what are usually referred to as phase one, phase two, and phase three trials. Phase one is really trying to establish efficacy, I'm sorry, is, is trying to establish the uh, safety of the vaccine, and in addition, th the dose of the vaccine that should be used. And uh, then in phase two, if there seems to be that safety is okay, uh, then you generally try a larger number of people, say 100 people instead of 10 or 20. And then you look at in phase two, do you see that it still seems to be safe? There don't seem to be any showstoppers in terms of uh, serious side effects. And uh, in addition, do you get some indication that the vaccine might be uh, protective? And those indications, 
depending on the way the phase two trials are done, can be one of two things. What you usually are doing with a preventive vaccine is trying to induce what are called neutralizing antibodies. Those are the class of antibodies that interfere with virus infection. And so an important measure of a vaccine uh, in phase two is do you induce those responses that are associated with neutralizing uh, antibodies? Uh, a second way of doing it is some phase two studies, you actually look for efficacy. Do you actually see some degree of protection? When it comes to the SARS-CoV-2 candidate vaccines, virtually all of the early phase trials, phase one and phase two, what they're looking for is first safety signals, that there don't seem to be any serious uh, side effects from the vaccine. And second, or is there a reasonable immune response? Uh, and by that, it usually means looking at are there development of antibodies which are either directly shown to be neutralizing antibodies or some kind of antibody test that correlates closely with the neutralizing antibodies. You then get to the phase three trials. And the phase three trials, uh, which are currently enrolling patients for at least a few of the candidate vaccines, are usually a large enough number of people so that you can get a sense of is there going to be sufficient uh, safety from the vaccine because you're testing, let's say, 10,000 or 20,000 people. And under those circumstances, you should be able to see side effects that are relatively uncommon, although not the most uncommon side effects. But second, you want to have enough events that can uh, compare the placebo group, because usually these are placebo-controlled trials, uh, and are there enough events that occur so that you see that there is substantial protection in the group that gets the candidate vaccine compared to the group that gets the placebo. And these are randomized placebo-controlled trials. Neither the people who are getting the candidate vaccine nor the people who are evaluating them know who has actually received the vaccine and who has not. After there are a certain number of cases that have been seen, people then look to see what is the distribution between the number of cases that have occurred in the uh, placebo group compared with the number of cases that occur in the vaccinated group. And by measuring also the responses in the infections, do people clear their infection? You know, the kinds of questions you would be asking are, first, are there fewer infections in the vaccinated group compared to the placebo group? A second question would be, are, is there clearance of the infection faster in the vaccinated group compared to the placebo group? A third kind of question is, 
are there more serious infections in the placebo group compared to the vaccinated group? But those are the classes of questions that are being asked. And biostatistics are very important in phase three trials because you need to have enough of what are referred to as vaccine endpoints to be able to say with a degree of certainty that the vaccine confers a certain degree of reduction in risk and either risk of infection, uh, risk for clearing infection, or risk of serious infection. But those kinds of uh, parameters or endpoints measured with the vaccine. Before I finish, let me just say, Scott, that there is theoretically uh, a situation where you actually can challenge people with a vaccine dose deliberately uh, after they have or have not been vaccinated. And those are referred to as human challenge trials. Oh, wow. The usual uh, way of doing this is where you have a, a successful rescue treatment in the event that the challenge uh, really doesn't, is, you know, leads to serious infection. At the moment, the ethical view is that the seriousness uh, of some uh, SARS-CoV-2 infections are such, and we don't yet have a really successful rescue treatment. So at the moment, it's not felt that this would be uh, an ethical way of approaching things, especially at the moment, because doing the randomized controlled trials, you can get the results at least as fast as the time it would take to develop a uh, challenge dose, uh, et cetera. On the other hand, the NIH, having decided that it might be uh, ethically problematic to do it, doesn't want to put all of its eggs in one basket. And so we actually are developing a challenge dose, which would probably be ready in about a year. And if it turns out that the candidate vaccines don't uh, provide the degree of protection that we would like, we might end up going to some kind of uh, challenge trials. But I think that would happen only after we had some really good rescue treatment for people in case they were to develop a serious infection. But uh, if, we do, if, if we go with uh, the human challenging trials, how quickly can we go from creating the virus to implement, implementing it without compromising safety? Well, first, the ethical issues are not crystal clear mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that some people think it would be ethically okay, even if you don't have a rescue treatment, by exposing people who don't have uh, a likelihood of developing serious infection. For example, let's just say college students, okay, who don't have an underlying disease that would place them at high risk of having a serious infection. And some people feel that the risk, you know, if you just volunteer and you know what the risks are, that it would be okay. Other people feel that uh, even if you were willing to volunteer, until such time as you had a really effective rescue treatment, because we can't with 100% accuracy determine, even among low-risk people, there are some people who might have a, a serious infection, that it's not ethical to 
do that. But what really takes the time is developing a, a challenge dose so that you need to know how much virus there is, uh, et cetera. And that takes a fair amount of time to do that uh, under conditions where it is okay to give that challenge dose to a person. So we're holding off uh, first because we think that it's faster to do the randomized controlled trials. And, uh, but I would also point out that when you are challenging people because they will not be people who are at high risk, you won't be able to determine directly whether you're reducing the risk of developing serious disease. And ultimately, for most vaccines, what you're really trying to do is to prevent the development of serious disease rather than just preventing the development of asymptomatic or disease that has very little uh, in the way of symptoms. Um, on the topic of college students, uh, so I know on campus currently, Amherst is doing like, I think every other day they're testing for the virus. And mm -hmm. uh, one, one of the questions I had was, uh, rather than focus on vaccine for like test itself, I know there's like three different type of tests. There's through the nose, I think there's a pharyngeal swab as well. Um, and uh, one worry that I guess we had was that since we're testing every other day and we're getting a lot of negative results as a result, uh, is there any worry for false negatives? Because I remember searching up articles, mm -hmm. I, but these are kind of old articles, but yeah. they did a uh, reverse transcriptase PCR and they reported like a sensitivity rate of 70%, which it, might well, be slightly uh, worrying, but uh, I, that, that's an old figure that I feel. Yeah, Scott, sensitivity is always an issue. And for any test, you're not just worried about false negatives, but also about false positives. Uh, and the test that is being, you know, being done, I don't know what test is being done uh, at Amherst. Presumably it is uh, an FDA uh, approved test. Uh, yeah. And so presumably it has good sensitivity and specificity characteristics, but there's always an issue of false negatives uh, and false positives for any test. Uh, and that's why if somebody is positive, you know, you follow it up by uh, usually with another test to confirm that it really is a true positivity, especially when the uh, percentage of positives is very low. Uh, and there are always going to be some false negatives because when somebody is very early on in the infection, their level of infection may be quite, uh, may be quite low. But I would say that uh, testing every other day should be a very uh, good approach for quickly identifying people who are positive. But if there is someone who is positive, what becomes really critically important is to be able to do uh, good contact tracing uh, of the people that that individual might have exposed. Uh, and that really is the way to crack down uh, on there being some kind of super spreader event or something like that. And I would imagine that Amherst has those kinds of safeguards uh, in mind 
in the event that somebody uh, has a positive test. Yeah, I think Amherst, like every time a case is reported, they send out an email and it seems like they have pretty effective contact tracers because they always give an exact amount of who they were in contact with. So I think Amherst is doing a good job there and also yeah. keeping like eight cases isolated on campus uh, based on what I've heard from other students' experience on campus. And, yes, uh, I would imagine that, you know, in it is easier in principle with a school that has a population of less than 2,000 people. And right now I would, I would assume that it's well under 1,000 than it is uh, with a large university where people come back, where, where people come back uh, and it's thousands and it's thousands of people. Uh, so I, I, I would anticipate that Amherst uh, has a lot of safeguards in place that will keep the infection rate low. When do you think, when do you think we can be off mask uh, after, like off masks are no longer needed after vaccine? has been made. Like well, when do you think we can return to the yeah. normal society? Yeah, Hill, that's a terrific question. It is not a question to answer right now mm -hmm. because what it will depend on how many people get vaccinated and what happens to what we refer to as the prevalence of SARS-CoV-2 in the population. Uh, the the issue really the, the issue really will be uh, is the does the prevalence go down substantially so that we have a very low level of virus so that your risk of being exposed whether you've been vaccinated or not uh, ends up being very being very low uh, the first thing that will need to be done is for there to be good uptake of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And the responsibility of the FDA is not just to approve a vaccine, but also to make sure that even though we're trying to uh, shorten the amount of time that it usually takes for a vaccine to be approved, that none of the rigor is uh, do, there aren't shortcuts to the rigor. In other words, that the safety of the vaccine is evaluated just as stringently as it would for any other vaccine. And in addition, that the efficacy of the vaccine is evaluated as stringently uh, as for any other vaccine. And for the public to be aware that after any vaccine is approved, that the CDC and the FDA follow people who are vaccinated as a group to make sure that when you go from, let's say, having a clinical trial involving 20,000 people to now giving the vaccine to several million people, that there aren't some unexpected, very serious side effects related to the vaccine that come out during that time. So all of these safeguards are in place and we need to be able to uh, correctly assure the public that all of them are in place when it comes to the testing of SARS-CoV-2 vaccines before they are approved and again after they are uh, approved. This is what will lead to 
the highest uptake of the vaccine in addition to educating people uh, about the safety and efficacy uh, of the vaccine. One question that a lot of people worry about is that there have been a lot of comparisons of the virus to the flu and that corona, like COVID could become like a seasonal flu that like we'll have to get vaccines like every year, basically. Um, is there a chance that the virus becomes like that or that it can mutate and that we'd have to all get revaccinated because and that like there won't ever be a time where like masks won't go away based on what you know about the virus? Yeah, I think that's uh, another excellent uh, question, Scott. What my view is first that because of the way that coronaviruses are put together, the uh, development of mutations is going to be much slower than the development of mutations with influenza virus. Uh, so could there be variants that really change the virus dramatically? Yes, that's possible. But it wouldn't be at the same rate as we get with flu vaccine. In addition, uh, my own view is that it will probably be easier to develop a vaccine that uh, gives a high level of protection against uh, SARS-CoV-2 or other coronaviruses than it is to develop vaccines that give a high level of protection against influenza. I think that what's, what people need to understand is that what's being tested right now are first generation vaccines. These vaccines are the ones that are the easiest to uh, manufacture and produce in large numbers. But I anticipate that uh, going forward, even if these candidate vaccines are successful, that over the next few years, there will be second generation and third generation vaccines that have an even greater likelihood of being protective against uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 related infections that are uh, different from the current SARS-CoV-2 infections, which I think will further reduce the likelihood of mutations leading to another serious pandemic. Obviously, in order to do all of this, we need to continue to uh, support the development of vaccines and the development of these public health measures even after there is a one or more successful first-generation vaccine. But I think that there is strong support in Congress for this kind of research, and I don't imagine that it would uh, re be reduced uh, regardless of which presidential candidate uh, is elected in November. Yeah, that is very true. I have one question. So aside from developing vaccines, do you believe that like continuation of this quarantine would be like temporary, if more effective measure to deal with the pandemic? Well, I think the, the, the question of, even if we had a good treatment, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a good rescue treatment, let's say, for example, the uh, the cocktails of neutralizing monoclonal antibodies that are currently being tested, let's say that they really work well. 
even with them, uh, I think that you would want to have more than just one level of protection. In other words, well, if you get infected, you can take the monoclonal antibodies. Usually, public health measures that are most successful are a series of measures rather than just relying on one measure itself. And what we can do to try to reduce the infection rate itself, I think, is really useful. Uh, so, for, so I think that the notion of social distancing and uh, masks, at least for the foreseeable future, will continue to make sense. I didn't mean to come across as pessimistic when I was answering the question of, well, you know, how long will we need to wear masks? Uh, my guess is that within six months of uh, the approval of a vaccine, we will have sufficient protection that uh, it will be possible to really go back to a large degree uh, uh, to business as usual, interactions as usual, et cetera. Okay, so that's a, a speculation on my part, but I would expect that within six months there'll be sufficient uptake of the uh, of the vaccine that uh, people will. Uh, be able to be more or less back the way things were before the epidemic. That's really reassuring, actually. I did not, like, I didn't really have, I tried searching up, like, timetables of, like, when, you know, like, of how long after, even after a vaccine would develop, how long would it take until, like, there's been enough, like, level of vaccinations for which, like, a sense of normalcy can return. Yes. Um, there's, let me just say, Scott, that there's this notion of herd immunity but it's extraordinarily controversial right now how many people need to be protected, whether it's by a vaccine or because they are protected after they've had their first bout of SARS-CoV-2 infection. And the speculations are all over the map. What that tells you is we don't know. And uh, I think that uh, it's, you know, I, I think that right now there's just not enough information to know what degree, uh, you know, what percentage of the population needs to be protected. And to some degree, it also depends on the ages of the population, what the transmission dynamics are of the infection, et cetera, what, what, what the actual answer uh, is. Scott, if I interrupted, I apologize. Oh, no, you're, no, you're good. You're good. Uh, I think that's like the concept of herd immunity was kind of like what I was thinking of from before. Yeah, and I just think that uh, we know that we certainly herd immunity exists for virtually all infections, but it is not known what percentage of the population needs to be uh, so-called immune. Uh, and I've seen uh, hypotheses that are as low as 20 to 25% and others that are as high as 75%. Uh, and what that tells me is we just don't have enough data. And, and therefore, it is not useful at the moment to make these kinds of speculative hypotheses if they are going to lead to changes in policy. 
we really shouldn't be making changes in policy based on these speculative and as yet unproven hypotheses. I know your expertise is more on the research on HPV vaccine, Dr. Lowy. So are there any major differences or potential similarities between the two uh, diseases, um, the two viruses, SARS-CoV-2 and HPV? Well, yes. I mean, there are similarities with almost, between almost all viruses, and there also are critically important differences. One, there, one similarity is that most people who are infected with HPV don't even know they have the infection, and it goes away on its own. And it's very analogous to uh, SARS-CoV-2, where you know, people of your age, probably you know, 40 or 50% of them have totally asymptomatic infections that they resolve spontaneously on their, uh, on their own without ever having uh, any, any symptoms. The big difference is the length of time that it takes to have a serious uh, problem with the infection. With SARS-CoV-2, you know within uh, a week or two of getting the infection, it is serious or it is not serious. With HPV, it takes years because what you are worried about with HPV is the development of cancer. And although the virus sets in motion a series of steps that leads to cancer, uh, it, it takes years for that to develop. So if you will, those are two of the uh, similarities and, and uh, differences. Uh, the HPV vaccine uh, induces a very high level uh, of herd immunity uh, when you vaccinate even a, uh, half of the population. Uh, but that's because the protective, the vaccine is more than 95% protective. Uh, we don't know what the rate of protection is going to be for these candidate vaccines or even for subsequent vaccines against uh, SARS-CoV-2. And the degree of efficacy is going to have an important impact on uh, how many people need to be uh, vaccinated. Uh, in order to uh, develop herd immunity. And I, I know there are many students here at Amherst who want to pursue a career in scientific research. Personally, I want to pursue a career in clinical research. Uh, can you share with us what resources have like helped you along the way or how you decided you want to pursue a career in scientific research after graduating from Amherst? Yeah, I had, when I graduated from Amherst, uh, I had majored in art history and I learned an enormous amount with that, that major. But I anticipated that I was going to be uh, a, a physician who mainly took care of patients, very analogous to both of my parents who were primary care physicians. But when I was in medical school, uh, I was exposed to advances that uh, were made uh, as a result of research, and it seemed very intriguing to me. And so I actually started doing a little bit of research 
when I was uh, in medical school, uh, and it whetted my appetite for it so that after I graduated, I actually, uh, in addition to getting clinical training, uh, I went to the NIH to get more training in research. Uh, and it was really critical for me to have the support of my supervisor or mentor when uh, I was at medical school because he actually thought that I had more potential for doing research than I thought I had. And he really helped me get my job at uh, NIH, which was a training position. Uh, and again, my supervisor or mentor was extraordinarily uh, uh, pivotal in helping to give me uh, strong training, uh, which actually was in viruses that cause uh, cancer in animals, uh, and, uh, and served as a stepping stone to my uh, developing my own laboratory and my own research program. And even after I did that, I was extraordinarily fortunate in that my laboratory was physically part of another laboratory where the head of that laboratory really sort of took me under his wing and helped me uh, to further hone my skills for doing research. So uh, yes, I think that I have some abilities uh, and being a self-starter and trying to, and, and having confidence that I know how to work on problems that I haven't worked on before, that plays an important role. And my training at Amherst, even in art history, really was critical for that. But the specific uh, help that I got from multiple mentors were, was indispensable for developing my career. That's great to hear, but just if you had the chance to do something, I was like, is there anything you wish you would have done before you started your career? Yes. Uh, if I had known that I was going to be doing uh, uh, laboratory-based research, I, I would have been better off to, to have majored in a science when I was an undergraduate at Amherst. Uh, Majoring in art history gave me some opportunities that I would otherwise not have had. For example, I did my junior year abroad uh, in, in Paris. I learned how to speak French well, and I, learned about, and, and, and I learned about art in ways that I otherwise wouldn't have learned. But uh, majoring uh, in a science at Amherst would have given me the tools for doing research that I simply didn't have when I, when I started. I think having an experience doing research as an undergraduate is, uh, really, benef is really beneficial because it gives you a real taste of what it is like to work in a laboratory. And this is something that you like doing. This is something that you hate doing. This is something that you have some talent for uh, or not really. Uh, so I, I actually think that there is a lot to be said for trying to do some kind of undergraduate uh, project 
especially if your supervisor or mentor is someone who can really talk with you uh, in a uh, constructive way about how about your potential and also how to further develop it, et cetera. I see. I'm just saying that for me, the mentors that I have had uh, at each level have really been instrumental in my uh, scientific uh, development and my ability to be a better uh, re researcher. Uh, and really that's because they have been willing to spend time talking with me about my research and how to make it even better. Well, that, that's, that's, this is very informative discussion. And we've learned a lot about how vaccines are tested specifically with the different phases, three phase testing, and then different trials. We just want to say thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Loy, and thank you for listening to our podcast. Well, Hill, Hill and Scott, I really think that what you folks are doing is terribly important to try to become as well-informed uh, as possible about this serious uh, epidemic that has upended everyone's life uh, during this period. Anyway, so it's been a pleasure to be able to participate with you. Thank you. It's a pleasure as well inviting you to join our conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.